provides you help with what is meant by what I said last week, 483 years leading decreed at 445 BC, leading into the arrival of King Jesus into Jerusalem. Take home that little sheet, study it. I hope that's well for you. Let's read this prophecy together. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. The angel Gabriel says to Daniel in verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. The purpose of that decree is to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to discern, rather, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city that is the city of Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, that is the temple, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. And he, that is the prince, the small prince, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, that's seven years. But in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Well, let's pray. Father, we uh, indeed come before you with humble hearts. We have sung of your goodness. We have sung of the greatest gift that you've sent this world, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard testimony of what the transforming work of the Holy Spirit of God does upon one who has been saved by your grace. And so we rejoice in all things we've done. And now we come to your word and we pray, Father, that we would have hearts that are attentive, minds that are attentive. Free us from the distractions and worries and cares of this world. And Lord, would you send your spirit out to be our truth teacher? Would he move among us in a mighty way? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. By way of refreshing the mind and aiming to really crystallize as best we can what is going on here. The first heading I have for you this morning is number one, the context, but we'll add recap. The context, recap. Because last Sunday we saw in verses 1 through 3 of Daniel 9 that Daniel had read in the book of Jeremiah about how as a result of Israel's sinful and willful choice to disobey God blatantly in regard to the commands that God gave Israel concerning the seven-year land Sabbaths that they were to observe. And as a result of that willful and utter rebellion to God, in that, that sin that they committed, God then placed them into Babylonian captivity where they were under Gentile rule. They were reigned upon and oppressed upon. And that was for, Daniel learnt there in verses 1 through 3 of Daniel 9, as a result of reading Jeremiah, that was for 70 years. And then Daniel, in response we saw, to grasping that reality that he and the nation of Israel 
are in the midst of this bondage of 70 years in exile, he then prays to God for forgiveness for the sin that Israel and he committed in not observing those land Sabbaths. And while he's praying, we see in Daniel 9 last week, while he's praying, the messenger Gabriel comes and tells Daniel, look, you're praying about 70 years. Well, I'm going to now tell you what the future looks like well beyond 70 years. In fact, it's going to be 70 years times seven years is what I'm going to tell you. Daniel, there's going to be seven slots of seven years that have been decreed for your holy people and your holy city, the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And then we confirm that when it says weeks there in Daniel 9, it actually means years, not by some allegorizing or spiritualizing of the text, but rather by the context of the text itself, and also what the Hebrew word Shabuah means. It means sevens. And so that's the context recap. <laughs> Last week, we moved from the context of the prophecy to the content of the prophecy, and there we saw how the prophecy is a total of 490 years. And we saw that those 490 years are then broken down. And we looked at how they were indeed commenced upon, they began, those 490 years began due to the decree of Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. And as we looked at the content last week of this prophecy, we began to break it down a little. But this morning, with the motto of repetition being the key to learning and the key to learning being repetition, I want us to run through that again and also show you how the 490 years, that is the 77s that have been decreed, that they're actually broken down into three parts. So stick with me here. First, you see there in verse 25 that there will be seven weeks. Look at the end of verse 25, that there will be seven weeks. Seven, seven-year slots. That equals 49 years, right? Well, what occurred in those 49 years? At least one person asked me during the week. It's a good question. What happened in these first 49 years refers to the rebuilding of the temple by Nehemiah after it had been destroyed. Remember, there have been three temples in Israel's history. And here in verse 25, it's not referring to the one that was destroyed in AD 70. That's in verse 26. But this 49-year period was back when Nehemiah was to rebuild the, the temple that was prior to the one in AD 70. But the observant mind might say, Nehemiah 6.15 says that the wall of Jerusalem was completed in 52 days. So what about, the, what about the 49 years? Well, Nehemiah 6.15 does say that. But look at the rest of verse 25 here in Daniel 9. It says, it will be built again, referring to the temple. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. 
Well, if you read Nehemiah, you'll certainly read that it was built in times of distress, the mocking and all the things that was going on. But the wall took 52 days, but 35 acres and the like of the whole area and all that's inside the temple, the plazas, the moats, all the grand pillars and plazas would have taken a lot longer. So 49 years speaks of Nehemiah's building career as a builder, all his building work. That's the first 49 weeks. Then you have 62 weeks. And you simply need to add always that to that 62 weeks, you need to add the seven weeks prior, and that's when you get the 69 weeks. Just days after the 69th week, we read there that the Messiah will be cut off, crucified, killed, severed, the word means. And so you have 70 weeks all up, all right? 69 of them occur, that's 483 years. And then after those 69 weeks, you have the 70th week. But before the 70th week, and after the 69th week, look there in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, which includes the 69 weeks from the seven previous, After the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So before the 70th week and after the 69th week, there's a gap. In that gap, verse 26 tells us, the Messiah will be cut off, killed. And so now I want to spend time looking at the gap between the 69th and 70th week. It's very, very important. Let's make that our second heading this morning. Number two, the content gap. The content gap. Most commentators from most denominational streams all agree that the 483 years, that's the 69 weeks, is prophecy fulfilled with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah and his crucifixion sometime between A.D. 30 and 33. Yet there remains significant disagreement about the 70th week, which is mentioned in verse 27. It says that he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, one sevens, seven-year period. Significant disagreement. All anchored around, all birthed from the hermeneutic that you use, the principles of interpretation that have been going on about for the last couple of weeks. What you use will determine what you draw from what you get from it and they can't all be right and so to look at it as plain as can be to apply a grammatical historical hermeneutic upon the text we arrive here at this 70th week which is the final seven year period that is fulfilled immediately after jesus crucifixion We've got to ask ourselves a question. Is there a lengthy gap between the 69th and 70th week? Has the final seven-year period, that is, the final week, already occurred? That's what our dear Reformed, Covenantal, Amillennial, Presbyterian brothers and sisters believe, that that 70th week has already occurred. We've got to ask ourselves a question, or is it still to come? Let me show you why I believe it is still 
to come. And you may ask yourself a question, why does it matter anyway? I mean, it's all going to pan out. Well, this is why it matters. If all the 70 weeks have already been fulfilled, then simply all we then await is the second coming of Christ. There is no purpose for Israel. There is no plan for Israel. There is no future restoration and salvation of their people and of their land. There is no millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. It's all just simply waiting for the second coming of Christ. But when you see that there is still much more to happen in the future, you see the absolute glory of God on display as His promises that He made through the prophets of the Old Testament are not redirected to the church in some spiritual sense, but are applied in a very literal sense to His beloved Israel, who in Zechariah 2.8 he says is the apple of my eye. That's why it matters. If you take the view that all 70 weeks, that is, all 77 year slots played out consecutively, then that allows you to hold to the view that the church has replaced Israel, that there is no coming millennial kingdom and understand this that you take what the Old Testament prophets said were promises of blessing to Israel and then you redirect them to the church that is not biblical or accurate but when you see a future and a coming week you see that all the promises that the Old Testament prophets spoke of You see them not being redirected, but applied to where they were spoken to. The apple of his eye, Israel. Let me show you a number of reasons why there is a gap. Now, this is not exhaustive. There are other reasons, but here are some. Number one, the historical fulfillment of this prophecy requires that there be a gap. Look closely at verse 26. After. It says then after. So the death of of Jesus, and then look what it says as well. After the Messiah being cut off, after that, the people of the prince will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. So you already have, after the 69th week, you have all the trials and then the execution of the Messiah. And then you have the destruction of the temple prophesied here. Right? Now, we know when that Destruction of the temple happened, right? We saw it in Mark. Jesus walks out of the temple. And one of the disciples turns and says to him, Wow, look at how wonderful all those buildings are. And what did Jesus say? Not one of those stones will be left upon another. And that prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70 when Titus Vespasian came. The Roman army destroyed it. 
And what did Josephus say about it? He said, writing at the time, this Jewish historian, he said it was though no one ever even had lived there. Such was its decimation. And so here is a prophecy of two things. After the 69th week. The crucifixion of the Messiah. The destruction of the temple. When did the destruction of the temple take place? A.D. 70. That in and of itself is 40 years after the Messiah has been cut off. You could argue, you could say, if you were arguing for a consecutive view that it just went 67, 68, 69, 70. Okay, well, that all happened in seven years. Jesus died, the temple was rebuilt. But the trouble is about what we know about when the temple was rebuilt in AD 70. 40 years after. So there, immediately, in and of itself, is already a gap. There's already one. And it's not happened as they believe. The, they believe, when I say they, I believe those of a covenantal view, those of an amillennial view, believe that the 70th week took place, you know, one and a half to three years or several years after. No, there's already a gap of, of 40 years. And so by verse 26 itself, you must admit there's a gap. Now, number two, there is a gap between the first and second coming of Jesus. There's a large gap between when Jesus first came and when he's still to come again at his second coming. And because of that gap between his first and second coming, it is not unrealistic to expect a gap in the fulfillment of prophecies, particularly prophecies concerning Jesus. Let me give you an example. Because why these examples are pertinent is because people ask, where's the gap between the 69th and 70th week? It's not there. But let me show you why in prophecies there is often a gap. You see, as Jesus arrived into Jerusalem, he was riding on a donkey, right? That was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. Let me read it for you. Rejoice. Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. But now listen to the very next verse of Zechariah 9. The very next verse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he, speaking of the king who came on a donkey, he, that's Jesus, will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So, verse 9 is speaking about the quote-unquote triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then verse 10 is speaking about his rule over the nations of the world here on earth. At his second coming, when he establishes his millennial kingdom. There's a gap. Number three. The fulfillment of all that this prophecy contains actually in and of itself includes a gap. Let me show you that. Look at verse 26. That's uh, verse 24, rather. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now here it is. To finish the transgression, 
to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most most holy place. There are six things in those 490 years that will be achieved. The first three, finish the transgression, make an end of sin, and atonement for iniquity, were all accomplished by Jesus in his first coming. And in his substitutionary atonement that he made upon the cross. The first three. Now, the final three of those six that are decreed there, the bringing in, it says, of everlasting righteousness, the sealing up of vision and prophecy, which is better understood, the completion of all the prophecies, the anointing of the most holy place, they all obviously await the second coming of Jesus. Because, think about it, an eternal state hasn't yet been ushered in or begun, has it? We're not in this eternal state of righteousness yet. A completion of prophecies hasn't occurred yet. And most certainly, the temple in the new Jerusalem to come hasn't yet been anointed by the king, Jesus. So, the final three occur when Jesus comes again in his second coming to establish his kingdom. There's a gap even there. And I trust you see that. That is a gap that simply cannot be ignored. Number four, the book of Revelation, this is a little bit like a seminary class this morning. Repetition is the key to learning. (laughs) The key to learning is repetition. Number four, The book of Revelation with all its scrolls and bowls and seals and trumpets explicitly and clearly from Revelation chapter 6 through to Revelation 19 clearly refers to the final 70th week that is a state of tribulation which is what all the scrolls and bowls and trumpets are about as a coming event in the future. How on earth can all that have been fulfilled in the 70th week? I have no idea. Number five. The church age that began some 2,000 years ago now, which came about at Pentecost, after all Jesus' earthly ministry and his obedience to the Father's will in that earthly ministry proves there's a gap because even though people want to get nervous about there being a gap in prophecy you got to remember that Jesus himself during his earthly ministry entered the synagogue while in Nazareth and in Luke chapter 4 we read that Jesus opened the scroll right of the prophet Isaiah it was handed to him he unfolded it he found in the place where it was written he read he read it out and what did it say The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim deliverance to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then what had happened? Then He rolled up the scroll, sat down. The eyes of everyone was looking at Him in the synagogue there in Nazareth. And what did He say? He said, today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There's another gap in prophecy. 
That's another example of a gap in the fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus came, as he said, to preach good news. And throughout this gap, we take up that call also, and we preach good news also. The church age is included in that gap. The mystery revealed, now revealed, rather, is part of that gap. Number six, last. This is why there's a gap between the 69th and 70th week. The events of the final week, that is, the final seven-year tribulation, have not yet been fulfilled. I mean, how you can say and take Jesus' words in Mark chapter 13 that the great tribulation is going to be something that is more cataclysmic and more disastrous than has ever taken place on the earth or ever will, how you can take those words and apply them as already having taken place, I have no idea. The events of the final week have not yet been fulfilled. And to show you that is indeed the case, we move now to our third and final heading this morning. Let's call it number three, the coming week. The coming week. Here's the coming week. Verse 27. And he, that's this little prince, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. In our journey through Mark, we looked at, Mark 13, we looked at the first 13 verses of the Olivet Discourse, and it's there that I showed you that Jesus' words to the disciples are words to Israel and not words to the church, in that they are words to prepare Israel for, for, for what it will look like in the tribulation, for this coming seven-year tribulation that will fall upon them. It won't fall upon the church because the church will be raptured out. And when we return to Mark 13, we'll see in verse 27 that we just read in Daniel 9, we'll see it playing out before our very eyes. The he there in verse 27, as I've made mention to a couple of times, is not Jesus the Messiah, as some want to say it is. How would it be Jesus the Messiah if, back up one verse, the people of the prince came to destroy the city and the sanctuary? We're not interested in destroying the holy city, but the people of the prince there is talking about the Antichrist, the desolator. Because the people of the prince who came to destroy the city, well, who are the people of the prince? Who destroyed the temple in AD 70? The Romans. And so this Antichrist comes out from among the Romans. And we see this in Daniel chapter 7 verse 8. Daniel 7 verse 8 calls this prince the little horn. And if you remember from Daniel 9, there's 10 horns that are raised up this coming day in the future where there, where there will be this confederate of nations from outside of Rome. And from among those 10 horns... Daniel says, there's this little horn, and he's different than the other ones. He rises up. He'll, he's different. And that little horn, you read in Daniel chapter 7 and the like, he makes war against the saints, it says there. And it says also this, this little horn speaks against the Most High. Daniel 9 verse 27 tells us, the tribulation is kicked off by him. It begins with him making a covenant with the many. That is, he makes a peace treaty with Israel. 
He will, in these times, so appeal to the nation of Israel that they will engage him in a peace treaty, a firm peace treaty. And so, he's no doubt going to be very winsome and warm towards Israel for them to do that. They like what they see and hear. They normally have other nations against them, right? But now here comes one from among the other nations who is very warm to them. And what occurs is false peace. And do you recall Jesus' first words back in Mark chapter 13 that we spoke about? What did he say? He said, do not be misled. Many will come and say, I am he. And there'll be this time of false peace at the beginning of the tribulation. And very quickly, as we look at the inner mechanics of this seven-year tribulation, we must consider the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation chapter 6, all the way through to chapter 19, there is a detailed list of what takes place in the form of judgment. We're not going to look at all that this week. In coming weeks, Lord willing, we will. But the reason I make mention of that is because remember that the time of tribulation is not some generic time where God is just kind of angry at the world. You know? It's a time of chastening and judgment of Israel with the express purpose, according to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30, that they will, in that tribulation, be chastened and that they will obey and believe in the Messiah. That's the express purpose of this coming final week. The church has been raptured. There's utter chaos in the world. And Israel is looking for help. And the little horn, the Antichrist, makes false peace with them. And the first thing we read in Revelation concerning the tribulation is that it will be, according to Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 to 3, a time of peace. False peace. But then look in the middle of this seven-year period. Look what happens in the middle in verse 27. But in the middle of the week, it says he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. What does that mean? Well, what happens is, in this time of peace and no doubt joy, in the first half of the tribulation, Israel, by their own initiative, restores the temple to some degree and reestablishes the Levitical system. I mean, you can read now, some of you do read now, you can read now, not necessarily in Christian publications and Christian resources, but you can read now about how Israel today is working toward how they will, in fact, recommence these kinds of sacrifices. They're planning for it even today. And so midway through this tribulation, the little horn of supposed peace, the Antichrist, he then shuts it all down. He, he closes worship in the temple. Who is this guy? Well, he's a guy who no doubt begins to act lawlessly, right? He makes a covenant, then breaks it, ceases worship in the temple. Who is this guy? Well, Paul speaks of him in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 as indeed the man of lawlessness. Refers to him as the man of lawlessness. And... In order to fulfill the prophecy Jesus made about him in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, about when you see the abomination of desolation taking place, 
there must be a very specific event take place. And it takes place in the middle of the week, so three and a half years into the tribulation, when this Antichrist makes a stop of what is going on inside the temple. And then he actually goes inside the temple. Into the most holy place. And listen to what Paul writes in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Listen to what Paul says he will do when he goes inside that temple. He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So amidst a watching world, no doubt, a world that he is most certainly influenced and a nation of Israel that he's most certainly influenced, He goes in and he exalts himself against every other God in the entire world. And he exalts himself against every other object of idolatrous worship in the world. And then he takes a seat in the temple and says, I am God. That is the abomination of desolation. No stronger term is used by God in his word than abomination. And this man who comes to Israel, who makes peace with them, who wins them over, then with political power, no doubt financial prestige and financial power and worldwide influence and esteem. As the man of peace, he enters the most holy place in the most holy city, takes his seat down on the most holy place and then says, I am God, an abomination. One leader will, as has been well put, He'll mesmerize the masses. Don't think that can't happen. You've seen that throughout history of human history, right? And then he moves against Israel. And what begins to occur now in the middle of the tribulation is what is known as the great tribulation. The latter half of the seven years. Tribulation. It is a time where Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 13, it'll be worse than there has ever been and ever will be. We'll look at all that next time, Lord willing. But I want to close by saying this. It is the glory of God to grasp what he has revealed in his word concerning the end times. I had one young man come to me last week and say, Matt, I'm, I'm not a pan-millennialist anymore. <laughs> Meaning that it'll all just pan out and it doesn't matter. It is to the glory of God that we grasp what he has revealed in his word. Let me show you why. First, we mustn't yawn at the details that have been revealed to us regarding the end, to ignore or even to avoid the study of end times and fail to grasp them and allow them to grip your heart is to miss a large part of what God wants you to know. More than that, second, it motivates us to godly living now in this present day. You see, the eminence of Christ's snatching of us, the church, is the next event on God's calendar, and it's a signless event. It happen any moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And that means that in a moment, 
you and I can be with him. And I don't know about you, but I want to be found to be faithful. And walking joyfully before him when I'm with him. Living in a way that pleases him. Now on earth. First John chapter three, verse two and three says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, we live in a day, perhaps like never before, where the ways and the very will of the world assault our hearts and minds via streams of clickbait, mass social media and the like. And we are then given to fix our minds on that. And when we do, more than we would even fail to acknowledge or even be aware of, we are then brought down into the ways and the will and the missions of this world which stands against our God. And then we are molded into its image and its mindset And when that happens, we begin to be frustrated at things we ought not be frustrated at. We begin to be angry at things that should not anger us. We begin to complain about things that we should not be complaining about. We begin to be surprised at things that should not surprise us, like the opposition of our faith. The censoring of the content of our faith. Do not be surprised or worried or frustrated or perplexed at the things that go on in this world, but be lifted up above the worries of this world and fix your hope on him who is to come. It's been well said that theology matters and it does and included in that theology is end times and end times matters. I'm convinced that many of the things we complain about Many of the things we moan about, many of the things we get impatient about, many of the things we get frustrated about are remedied by hearts lifted up out of this world by looking to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and eyeballs, as Edward said, that are stamped with eternity on them. That everywhere we look, there is eternity in mind and end times ushers us in to eternity. We wouldn't complain so much and we wouldn't grumble so often or lose our joy so easily if we kept our minds and hearts on the promises to come in the end. Listen to James chapter 5 verse 8 and 9. The word of God calls us, each and every one of us here, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. So that yourselves may not be judged. What does it say? Behold, the judge is what? Standing at the door. Standing right at the door. He's about to burst back onto the scene. And we want to be found holy. Third, being gripped by what God has in store for the end helps with the troubles of this life now. I mean, we see evil everywhere. Right, That evil is abounding both from our own hearts and from the evil of others. 
And that brings upon heavy trials upon us. And we suffer in this life. But listen to Romans chapter 8 verse 18 which says this. I consider the sufferings of this present time. They are not worthy. Paul says to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see the apostle Paul was so gripped by the end times. That it ushered him through the hard times. You see that? Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? You are to be those in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day. Of God, because of the heavens which will be destroyed by burning and the elements which will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells eternally. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. Amen. Well, that's part two. That's the prophetic key to the end times. And that's the ramifications and implications of end times upon our very heart and upon our very soul. There's one last thing that the study of the end times makes us aware of. And it's this, that God will judge the wicked. And there are some of you here that are here this morning who in the sight of God according to his definition of the term are wicked and the reason you're found wicked in the eyes of God is because of your utter rebellion against God because of your rejection against the son of God the Lord Jesus Christ and so as believers we rejoice in all that is to come But knowing the terror and knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade you to come now to him. There are some of you here that must do that. You must come now to him, the one who hung upon the cross. The one who laid down his own life out of his great love. And on that cross, he bore all the weight and penalty of sin that was due you because of your rejection of him. And then he rose again and he defeated death. And that if you believe in him and you turn to him with a repentant faith, you turn away from your sin and you flee to him, you find peace with God and be forgiven. Don't let the coming judgment of the end times fall upon you. Flee today from the wrath to come to the one who endured the agonies of the cross and the joy set before him laid down his life. Do that today. And dear brother and sister, let's keep our eyes not upon this world, but on the one to come. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you for this immense privilege it is to be here in this hour. We thank you for the truth of the word of God. We thank you for the promises that you make concerning the future. We hold fast to those. We have hope in those. We have an unwavering commitment to those and we thank you for
all of this. We thank you for the work that you've done in our life. We look forward to now making our way across to the pool and witnessing the reality of what you've done in the life of one of your children. And so we say thank you for all of these things. We pray, Lord, that any soul here that isn't yet transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, Lord, may this moment be transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son and find peace and hope and joy and eternal life. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. If you're here and you want to learn more about how you can have peace with God, come and talk to me or one of the elders. Church family, if we make our way over to the pool, we'll witness this wonderful baptism. Thank you.